0: very much. Hi, everybody. My name is Vinnie, and I'm an alcoholic. And I've been having such a wonderful time. Everybody has been so kind and um, so much fun, you know. We were having a lot of laughs at dinner, and somebody said, are you nervous? And I nearly hit the ceiling because I'd forgotten why I was here. (laughs) I just (laughs) thought I'd come to Florida and have this wonderful time. Um, have you ever noticed that when speakers take their watch off they never look at it again and the <laughs> the <laughs> always the people who talk for two hours and, Well, um, I will just tell you my drinking story uh, that's frankly the only way I know how to tell it is chronologically and I'm can you hear me alright okay this one works better thank you that's better okay Um, I was crazy about drinking I just loved it I loved the way the stuff uh, tasted I loved the way I felt and if I could still be doing it I would be I come from a family of normal drinkers for the most part. We had an occasional alcoholic in the family tree, but my parents are normal drinkers and they always had their two cocktails before dinner, and in fact, they still do. As kids, we were served diluted wine at Sunday dinner and that kind of thing, and I frankly never connected drinking with any kind of trouble. I really connected drinking with Uh, nice things and with fun and with a lot of laughs or with company and parties and so i had that kind of attitude about what drinking was for it was for having a nice time i grew up in long island and the drinking age was 18 but you know kids start experimenting with liquor before then and certainly there was a lot of that going on when i was in high school but for whatever reason i rarely drink well actually when you'd be going to some of those parties where the parents are out of the house for the evening you know and there's lots of beer and a cast of thousands and it would seem you know that the evening would end with all these boys throwing up in the bushes and girls crying in the bathroom and it was not really my idea of a good time and so as a result I did very little drinking when I did drink I found though that I got very fuzzy around the edges almost right away a feeling of being totally out of control rubbery knees that kind of thing and as a result I didn't drink I went to school in the Midwest I came back to the New York area to uh, build a life for myself, and I was really very much looking forward to living my life. I had a lot of dreams, and I had a lot of big plans, but like many of you here tonight, I stopped at a bar. I got a job in Manhattan at an advertising agency, and within a short time I was sharing an apartment with another young woman, and I was introduced to drinking at this agency where I worked. Now, a lot of the people that I drank with were older than I, and they had uh, very firmly entrenched drinking habits. And I was very, um, I guess, impressed by this. I don't know what I was. It was a time in my life when, if it's possible, uh, for as enthusiastic as I was, and as hopeful as I was, and as excited as I was, I think I was that afraid too. And I don't mean to give the impression that, until then, I never had any kinds of problems or anything, because I did. But at this time, there was an anxiety that was a constant companion. And frankly, I don't remember having constant anxiety as part of my life until this particular time. And so when I was introduced to daily drinking, you know, it really was just the ticket because aside from being with all of these uh, people from this agency who, you know, they talk over drinks about how somebody won an account for the agency or somebody lost an account, and it seemed kind of neat to feel like you were on the inside track. Uh, We did an awful lot of drinking, and things like getting fuzzy around the edges and weak at the knees were not part of it. It was almost as if my chemistry had changed and I was putting away more than a lot of these very seasoned drinkers. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I loved the way I came together inside. And at first I had that hollow leg that a lot of us seem to have in common. And it's a good thing because I was going to need it, it turned out. Um, (laughs) And, you know, for, I'd say really for a year or so, I didn't have any of the, you know, signs of drinking being a problem. I mean, certainly it was, I was putting away great amounts, but I was not paying any kind of a price for it. I was not embarrassing myself. I was not embarrassing other people. I seemed to be navigating. And the worst thing that would happen would be I might have a terrible headache in the morning and a couple of aspirin would take care of that. During this time of, you know, drinking at lunchtime, drinking after work, drinking at parties over the weekend and that kind of thing, um, I had heard people talk about martinis and I had never had one, and I noticed that people seemed to get a certain expression on their face when somebody else ordered a martini, and they'd get very shifty-eyed. People were very particular about martinis. Some people liked them with lemon peel, and some liked them with olives, and some liked them straight up or on the right. And there would be all this discussion about it. seemed to generate a discussion that no other kind of drink ever got started. And so one night when I was out with friends, I decided that I wanted to find out what the big deal was. And, well, they were terrific, you know. They, I mean, they really, they were just wonderful. And as I was putting them away, I can remember thinking, I wonder what the big deal is, you know? These are just great. It's no big deal. They're wonderful. And the next morning, my roommate said, do you know how much you had to drink last night? And I didn't. I was not counting. I did not black out, I did not pass out, but I knew I had a lot. And she was counting, I guess she was just stunned. And she said, You had 14, Martine. And I suppose I could stop here, you know, if you want to know whether or not I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, I was very embarrassed and worried at the same time. Not really embarrassed over anything that I did, but I knew somehow that there was something wrong with anyone who would want that much to drink. And that's really the way I looked at my drinking, that it was something that I wanted to do, not something that I had to do. Although, as I can recall, The compulsion was really there from the start because I would start drinking at lunchtime. I'd go back to the office and around 4 in the afternoon it was as if there was this little animal on some kind of little treadmill inside me that was just screaming for more to drink. And so no matter what I had planned for after work, whether it was taking a night course or meeting friends or going to a movie, just going out to dinner, or going home and getting my laundry done, those things really weren't getting done because when I drank at lunchtime it was just determined that I was going to drink after work and I would close most places that I drank. in. Now I could see that I didn't drink like a lot of other people. You know, when they would give the last call in the bar, even the heavy hitters seemed to be able to accept that, you know? (laughs) And I would go crazy at the notion that the supply was going to be cut off. Or, you know, those super painful times when you're with people who drink normally and, (laughs) I can remember being invited to people's homes and the host or hostess might say, would anybody like a drink? And people would sort of look at each other uh, shyly and they'd hesitate to see if everyone was going to have drinks and there'd be all this hemming and hawing about. Oh, I don't know. Uh Harry, are you going to have a drink? Well, what do you that? And I d- the very notion, you know, that <laughs> drinks would not be part of the scene. I mean, was horrifying. <laughs> and I could see that there was a difference between those kinds of people and me. Um and When people would only serve wine with dinner and that level on the wine bottle started to go down and to think there may not be more. (laughs) It was horrible and I could see again at times like that that I didn't drink like other people. And it was the trying to do things like other people that seemed to become less and less possible in just every area of my life. And that was really very painful. I mean, For the most part, I was going through the motions of being a 20-something-year-old in Manhattan. But inside, and in fact, in, you know, in terms of many activities, there were a lot of things that I wanted to do that young women my age could do. And I simply couldn't, you know? I couldn't get it together. Even without a glass in my hand, I started to have those, you know, terrible emotional and mental feelings that seemed to be such a part of alcoholism and are so confusing. Because glass in hand, I could see frequently that I was in trouble, but it was the feeling that I had between drinks that, well, eventually, you know, I thought that I was probably losing my mind. I would make a lot of promises to myself about my drinking because, you know, I mean, when I was drinking, glass in hand type drinking, I could get myself into some situations that frankly I would not have if I had been sober. I also never had any money because so much of it went to support my habit. I would think every once in a while that there were things that I really wanted to do and places that I wanted to go. And it wasn't it was it was just totally out of the question. And so what I came to feel most of the time was really very depressed, very worried, but worried about everything, you know? I mean, worried about the future, but worried about the present. And the fears that have fears, you know, the not being able to answer the telephone in the office and the phone rang all day. A lot of my work was done by phone. And there was a wonderful friend of, co who became a friend of mine who sat at the next desk and that phone would go off and I'd scream, my God, who could that be? And she'd say, I don't know, why don't you answer? And I'd say, I can't, and she would. And it just became one of those, Uh, You know, adjustments that you make, things that you can't do when somebody else has to do. She had to answer the phone because I couldn't do that. I couldn't go to the beauty salon and get my hair cut because I either didn't have the money or I couldn't sit still long enough to have somebody work on my hair. I couldn't buy stockings because I could. The anxiety of standing online in a department store just got to be too much. So did buying new clothes. And I'm the eldest of five. And at that time, most of my yeah, my, all of my brothers and sisters were still at home. And I would occasionally go out to Long Island to make a visit. And I'd come back with dresses that I'd borrow from my mother or one of my two sisters and we all wear different sizes and everything that I that I would borrow would either be black or brown or navy blue you know because it wouldn't show the spots I thought because I didn't do things like go to dry cleaners I could that was one other thing that I couldn't do and so I had these outfits with stains on them where the hems were held up with staples or scotch tape, and I would rearrange the runs in my stockings every morning, and I would try to make it to the subway by holding on very close to the inside walls of the apartment buildings, and the sign on the corner would flash walk and don't walk, walk and don't walk, and it would take me about 20 minutes to get it together and then down the subway steps holding on with both hands to the railing, afraid of everything, afraid of heights, afraid of things that moved, afraid of things that stood still. Now why did I feel this way? I mean we all know why now but at that time I I certainly didn't know and I knew that I hadn't always been like this. I would look at some of my friends who were normal drinkers. I would look at one particular sister of mine who was about seven years younger and I would think, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was like that when I uh, laughed easily and I enjoyed things and I looked forward to doing things and I just felt good. It wasn't that long ago. But what had happened, I had absolutely no idea. And I knew that I would never feel that way again, but I didn't really know why. The daily drinking, the party drinking, the drinking with friends, the drinking with strangers, it was still a part of the scene. But you know, 14 Martinis came to be a thing of the past because my tolerance started to slide And I was now getting very drunk on very little and feeling very, very embarrassed and very mortified by this because I was a social butterfly, you see. And um, the drinking was really interfering with my drinking because I was putting all of my energy into trying to act sober. And that really didn't seem to be in the cards anymore. I can remember being with some people after work one night and uh, I, it's not as if we were into heavy sharing, but we did talk, you know. And I tried to say something and it came out in this uh, (laughs) And I was so horrified and I, I this could not happen again. And I I don't think it really did because I made a promise to myself and it was one of the few that I could keep. And that was I stopped talking. (laughs) And did. And people would say things like, Vinnie, you've gotten so quiet, and I would just nod. But you know, I mean, when you can't talk to your barfly friends anymore, things are really looking down. (laughs) And I became even more inward if it was possible and even more frightened. I think those of us who drank in bars remember that there was a time when there'd be some poor soul at the end of the bar, you know, maybe staring into the mirror or maybe his head down on the counter. And a number of us would say to each other, you know, if I ever got that bad, I'd (laughs) stop. And I was getting that bad. Among the most painful things, though, were the people around me who cared about me and who loved me. And I loved them. And the shield that I built up between me and them was just that kind of emptiness was just so horrifying to me that when people who I knew cared said something like, how are you, it was like a knife in the stomach because I couldn't tell them. I didn't have the words to describe it and frankly even if I did, I don't know that any of them would have known what to do because I don't think any of them ever would have said, how much do you drink? I went over one of those invisible lines that seems to be part of the, of, of the progression, and this was when I, I just couldn't take it anymore, and I couldn't kid myself. Still drinking away, drinking every day, going through the motions, But I no longer could get that nice buzz that you could get on about your eighth drink, you know? I didn't have that buzz anymore. There were really no more laughs. I mean, here I was in these little outfits that I just described and, you know, and I couldn't kid myself that I looked all right. I knew I didn't look all right. And I hadn't felt well, it seemed, in years. You know, I, I can remember a flu epidemic that was one of the worst and everybody in New York was sick for weeks. But that was December, January, February. I mean, here it was, June, July, August. I still felt that way. And I had convinced myself that I had a very delicate constitution and I had just never gotten over the flu. I was trying to drink different things, you know, and I was trying wine, I was trying different liquors. and nothing was working. There was no more buzz. It all tasted the same. I always felt sick, and I could not kid myself about getting my life together. I knew somehow that the best thing that could happen, it already had, and I didn't know what that was. And something snapped, and I decided that the only way to end this, th- this feeling of uh, nothing, you know? It's as if the depression went away, the anxiety went away. I felt nothing. And I can remember I was sober a very short time when this guy was just, disc- he was referring to Dante's Inferno and saying that Dante described the lowest level of hell as the absence of all feeling. And I knew that he was talking about me. I couldn't take that. And I started to make plans to take my life. And the fact that I was thinking that way didn't even surprise me. I remember there was a man in my office who lost his son. The boy was 26 years old and he had committed suicide. And I can remember people saying, my God, can you imagine what it's like to be 26 years old and want to be dead? And I thought, yeah, I can. I, 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 I know how it feels. And I started taking things home from the office my personal possessions, you know, and getting them together in a box in my apartment so that when my family came to claim my estate, everything would be in order. <laughs> now, I've just told you what i had been doing with my life, you know, so my estate was about three years worth of laundry that I hadn't <laughs> done. It. That was about it. And in a strange kind of way, the secret that I had—that the end was coming—gave uh, me some kind of a, some kind of a strange relief, really. And I became conscious of doing things for the last time. It was the end of October in 1970. A friend of mine from high school was spending the weekend with me. She had no idea what I was going through inside. And I decided one Sunday morning that I wanted to go to church for the last time. And off we went, and during Mass when the priest asked for prayers, I heard a voice in back of me ask for a prayer for all those contemplating suicide. Well. I nearly hit the ceiling, but you know, it, it really didn't seem to have anything to do with me. And about three days later, still in the same pattern of drinking, still going to work, going through the motions of trying to be normal. This particular evening, which was no different than many, many others. I was trying to get to sleep. Sleep didn't come easily then, I think probably because my body kept craving alcohol, you know, and I thought, you know, I don't wanna be dead. I had been very serious about those plans and they had sort of given me a lift, but it dawned on me. I really didn't want to be dead and I promised myself that the next morning when I woke up, no matter how I felt, I was going to talk to this man in the office about AA. Now this guy was my boss. He was an AA member. We all knew it. It was a small business you know, I was working for a magazine and publishing in New York and be a, it's a small community so he had lost a very fine job at a well-known publication as a result of his drinking and now that he was on his feet again and sober he was very open he was very honest with everybody so I knew that he was an alcoholic and I knew he was sober in AA and there had been times when I had thought of going to him and I never did. But this particular morning, I pulled myself together, and I told him about the phenomena that I had noticed several years earlier, which was that when I drank at lunch, it was just determined that I was going to drink after work. Uh, I mean, a lot of things had happened and had not happened since I noticed that. But it must have made an impression on me because I t- that's what I talked to him about and he said you know if you don't know whether or not you're an alcoholic he said finding out is the most important thing you will ever do and he talked to me about I didn't have to know whether I had a drinking problem just try some AA meetings and keep an open mind And I had this notion because you see I wasn't really convinced I was an alcoholic because I knew enough about AA that AA was about not drinking anymore and I really didn't know that I was up to that and sitting there in his office that morning I had the notion that he'd probably take me out and watch me drink and then tell me whether or not I was an alcoholic. Because I had heard, alcoholics don't drink like other people. I had heard that. And I thought he'd probably be able to tell from some... So when he said, what are you doing for lunch? I sort of came alive, you know. I said, I'm free. And he said that that was just great because there was an AA meeting that he went to at lunchtime and he thought that I should go. And you know, the notion of, he means stopping drinking, starting now. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. It's now, no No more. But you know, in a moment, although I, I couldn't think of stopping, I also knew in some way that I couldn't continue. And I decided that I would go with him. And off we went to this lunchtime meeting in Midtown Manhattan, where all the guys looked at, like they had just walked out of Brooks Brothers. You know. And the women looked like they had just walked out of Saks. And they all probably had. You know. And he said to me, you're like A.A. Vinnie, people don't care what you look like or what you have on. <laughs> <laughs> it was horrifying. And it was a first-step meeting, and the man who led the meeting was a lot older than I was, and he'd had many, many privileges in his life and, you know, born with many silver spoons, languages, and had been all over the world. And he described being in his plane. He was piloting his own plane over the Grand Canyon, and he got thirsty. And he went to the back of the plane where he had a case of scotch. And he's describing how he has the bottle like this, and the plane is going like this. <laughs> and he, he actually said, it was at that moment that I realized that I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become a man. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I knew that he and I were the same. And how did I know that? I don't know that I would have known that even six hours earlier, but I knew that then. I believe that that type of experience that is the, really the grace or the gift of an open mind, that he and I were the same. And I thought, you know, this AA is great. The people were wonderful. There were meetings all over town. I went to meetings like crazy. They had meetings at lunchtime. They had meetings at midnight. And I loved the meetings and I loved the stories. And the different kinds of people and the laughs but you know I mean I was really as frightened between meetings as I was between drinks because I think the more I learned the more frightened I got because I really didn't believe that I was going to be able to stay sober I just knew that sooner or later I was going to be suddenly taken drunk and People would say things like, if we can do it, you can do it. And that meant nothing to me. As far as I was concerned, for years, the world was doing things that I couldn't do. What difference would that make? But I didn't drink, and I went to all of these different meetings, and I tried to keep an open mind. I couldn't sleep at night, and so I would try to read the literature, and I found that very tough to do because I... I really couldn't concentrate but I just did go through these motions and take these actions that people had suggested as best I could. People were very kind you know I mean people did put themselves out and there were people that called me you know and I tried to keep that in mind in the time that I've been in AH and I know sometimes people have very strict rules for newcomers And that's what they have. I realize that we're all different. But there were people who did not always insist that I make the first phone call, you know. There were people who would just call to check up and see how I was doing. And they were very kind, and they were very important in my life. And I try to remember that when I meet new people now. Well, in going through all of these sleepless nights and these mood swings and the anxiety and the heart palpitations and, you know, really, it didn't seem a whole lot different than it had seemed drinking. I mean, the only difference was I wasn't, but I felt as lousy. And then one morning I woke up after having the best sleep I had had in years. It was November. It was the kind of November that I guess a lot of you around here don't know about. (laughs) It was cold, the sky was blue, the sun was warm, and I felt almost as if some good fairy had sprinkled serenity dust on me while I was sleeping, you know. It was wonderful, and I looked out the window and the the colors were so vivid after years of everything being gray and brown and lousy and it was a blue sky and a yellow sun and I thought my god is this what it's like to be sober this this is wonderful and and I knew all through me something had come together from going through the motions and trying to keep an open mind something had come together inside. And I knew then that as long as I had AA, I would never have to drink again. And so far, that has been the case. Now, I used to go to these step meetings at lunchtime because it was something to do besides go out and drink. And there were times as the group went through the steps that it became kind of intimidating or very scary. You know, when we got to the fourth step and the fifth step and my God, making amends and all of that, it was, it was really kind of scary, but people would just assure me, you know, you just listen, and that's why we say easy does it, just take it easy. This boss of mine would pop in every once in a while to assure me of one other thing he thought of that I would like about AA. And he came in one morning when I—I I guess I was sober about two months—and he said, "You know, Vinnie, you'll love AA because you will experience a profound personality change." And again, I—you th- know—the things he came out with, I think, what's the matter with my personality? I mean, what kind of a thing is that to say to somebody? But you know, it was really. By, it was by listening to other people in meetings, but it was also by trying to live my life that I began to get a handle on the things that I thought I would like to change, which was just about everything. And I can remember too, you know, after feeling relatively comfortable not drinking today, some of the things that I thought I wanted for myself or some of the things I'd like to get rid of. The total confusion, you know, and, and just being so overwhelmed about what ends up. But of course what's so important is that we don't have to do any of that alone, and I really haven't. And there was the time of very frantic sobriety, you know, being worried about not being perfect and all of that kind of thing and there were I had a wonderful sponsor who you know assured me at one time that you know you can still be imperfect and you can still live your life. I think that was really very wise for somebody like me who thought you'd have to get everything together before you could do anything or before you could want anything and also finding that, It was important to be open to change, but it didn't have to be 365 degrees either. You know, just the slightest change could be monumental and could make all the difference. Somewhere in those years when I was doing a lot of this and I wanted to be like other people, you know, I was given that opportunity. I was still in my twenties and I found that I didn't have to drink myself out of my mind anymore. So I was able to live and I was able to do the things that people do and I still do. And that is sometimes rewarding and sometimes thrilling and sometimes hurtful and sometimes disappointing. But what I've been given is the opportunity to be human. Um, And probably, aside from drinking myself out of my mind, what I also needed to stop doing was uh, to have very uh, ridiculous and very inflated standards for myself and to be able to learn to accept myself somewhat and to accept life as it comes has probably been a major change. Um, I was sober a couple of months and I can remember volunteering at the intergroup office. It was something we were all encouraged to do and being so uh, nervous about talking to drunks on the phone. And the manager there said to me, well, you know, if somebody doesn't want to stop drinking, you will never say anything right. And if they want to stop, you'll never say anything wrong. And I think that's turned out to be the case. I got a great deal out of those days at the intergroup office. You know, how you listen to people that you never know, you know, if they're gonna go to that meeting or if you'll ever run into them. I can remember a woman who was a lot older. I mean, she made a point of telling me she was probably in her 70s. And I was trying to encourage her to go to a beginner's meeting that night, which I knew was right around the corner from where she lived. And I said, we have special meetings for beginners. She said, beginners, my dear, I have been drinking for more than 50 years. LAUGHTER Oh, you know, and I I wonder what happened to her. I was working at a magazine. I was sober about seven years, and I began to hear these wind chimes. Maybe you'd like to work at GSO. Maybe you'd like to work at GSO. And I did not understand this at all. I didn't want to work at GSO. I thought working for AA around the clock would really be too much. I, I didn't think that I'd be cut out for that at all. But I couldn't get it out of my mind and there was a really good friend of mine who worked for a man who was on the Board of Trustees at the time. She knew a lot of the people at the General Service Office and I figured I I'd, I'd talked to Irene and I would tell her about these wind chimes and these fantasies that I was having and she would tell me to just go out and have a malted you know and forget about it because it wasn't for me and I told her I just didn't understand where this was coming from and Irene said you know I think that that might be a very nice idea why don't you follow up on that and through her boss who was on the board you know I got an application and They tell me that, you know, they probably wouldn't have an opening for about 30 years, and I thought that was fine, because now I know that I would just go about what I was doing and forget this nonsense. But someone left very suddenly, and I was asked to come down for an interview. And it was really amazing, you know, and meeting the different staff people and hearing them describe public information and work in correctional facilities and work of the literature assignment and that I thought that I would really l- like to do that one staff member told me something that has remained the case no matter what assignment I ever served on and that is this she said these jobs are about getting the mail from the inbox to the outbox and I was invited to join the office and um, the weekend Before I started, I was rereading portions of A.A. Comes of Age, and that section where Bill talks about the big book and all the thousands of copies that they had in storage and all the disappointment with having so few orders and um, how they really needn't have bothered ordering so many and the Monday that I started working there, the staff coordinator took me around the office, and I I can remember going to the shipping department and just being so uh, grabbed by that with all of these cartons stamped, big book, 12 and 12 Living Soap, I thought, my God, you know, it wasn't really in the scheme of things, in the scheme of the history of the world, it really wasn't all that long ago when Bill couldn't even give the big book away, you know, and here they couldn't get them out fast enough. It truly is a miraculous thing that happened that AA has been able to reach so many people. Um, a few years ago, there was some reorganization at the office, and I was asked to take a slot of, of it's a new position called Publications Director. And I work with the editors and the Spanish translators and order entry people, inventory control people and work, who work with, you know, all the different committees and preparing new literature. and The newsletters, getting the stuff out to the groups and to the intergroups. And uh, it really is wonderful, you know, to be able to, uh, do some work for AA in this way and something that although the written word had always been my love, but never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be able to put some of my interests to use in this fashion. And there's um, some activities going on now literature-wise that I thought some of you might like to hear about. I guess maybe i just like to talk about it, but um, I think it's one of the most important services that the office performs and that happens to be the translation of AA literature. Now in the United States and Canada literature has been available in English, Spanish, and French for many many years and as AA grew in other countries once those countries were had enough members and they had enough money that they could form their own office and translate the big book into their language, they would do that on their own. They were all autonomous and responsible for taking care of their literature. But with the change of events in Eastern Europe in the mid-'80s, it became very clear that the. small AA community and professional community, the doctors for example, the psychiatrists, the psychologists, they were so hungry for AA literature and there was no way that because of their economy that they'd be able to take care of a translation anytime soon and so our board changed its policy and agreed That we'd provide startup literature where we could for countries that are unable to finance their own. As a result of that, we have the Big Book today available in 34 different languages and it reaches more than 2 billion people. Um, I was researching a project a few years ago and I came across some comments. A guy named Tom P, who was uh, Bill Wilson's editor on the Twelve and Twelve, was he was talking about himself and getting sober. Mm-hmm. And he <coughs> described going to meetings and drinking again, and you know that treadmill. And he'd get very sick. He'd be hospitalized every time. And he'd go to meetings and he tried to you know try to figure it out. And he had he could see all of these components. That were going on in AA. Uh, he had them all narrowed down and he knew that this reason, this reason, this reason is, is the reason it doesn't work. And he would get drunk, he'd get very sick. And he described coming out of the DTs in a hospital bed and he said he's, it's something like, I saw very clearly, he said without any emotion, he said, ver- I saw very, very clearly That this program is just plain true and that's why it works. It has the power of the truth behind it. I think that's why it translates so widely that cultures that are very different from ours have been able to hear the AA message and they've then they're able to absorb it. As a result of the translations efforts and the work of the board and the staff member on the overseas assignment. I've been privileged to travel in Eastern Europe a little bit. And there was a, you know, I mean, just like all of us have our own stories, you know, every Stanislav and Laszlo and Rodika and Ivan, all these people have their own stories. But it really is an incredible thing in countries where people still don't have telephones and can't get gas for the car, in the absence of intergroups. Who do you call when you think you have trouble with your drinking? It's very, very different from what we who've grown up you know, in North America are, are used to. I had to visit the Polish general service office about a year ago and I learned that in most of uh, the former communist countries the authorities did try to treat alcoholism and they did accept that alcoholics can't drink safely and so there was no experimenting with that they would try to get alcoholics to stop drinking permanently and they met in groups and in fact they still do and these are called sobriety clubs or abstinensky clubs. And when I was in Poland, I met this wonderful woman who was rather like the Sister Ignatia of Polish AA. Her name is Maria Matyszewska. And I can remember sitting at a weekly staff meeting in the 80s when Susan, who was on the overseas assignment, received a letter from this. Polish psychologist who wanted information about AA. She had been to a um, seminar in the West, and she learned from colleagues from Western Europe about the effectiveness of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, Maria Mataczewska ended up on the Box 459 mailing list, and she could not read a word of English. But she got it every couple of months, and she had a patient in her group named Raymond and Raymond knew some English so she g- gave Raymond the job of translating box 459 and that's what got Raymond sobered up and that's what got AA started in Poland. But she described how as much as she tried to use AA principles in her abstinensky club meetings, she knew that something was missing And she said that uh, there there was a visitor, a guy from uh, California of Polish descent, who was an AA member, and he came to her Absteninski club meeting one night with his big book, and she described how the members of the group were really uh, very ashamed of being alcoholics because it was really treated like a moral weakness, you know, and they didn't want to be seen going into this little uh, cottage, and they didn't want anybody else to be seen coming, particularly anybody who was drunk, because that they felt would really bring shame upon the group. And there was this drunk drunk who'd been trying to come to their meetings for a couple of weeks and they wouldn't let him in. And the <laughs> California AA with the big book shows up and Maria asks him to speak and he agrees to do that, but they were all shooing the drunk away and the american aa member said no you you let him come into the meeting and i'll i'll be responsible for him and maria described how this american aa member said to this drunk you sit next to me and she said she said frank turned and said to him thank you for coming you are the most important person in this room you are the reason we're here and she said about herself, she said, then I got it. She said, that's the 12-step. And she said, that's what makes it work. Because without the 12-step, AA would just be an academic experience. And what Maria matachevska realized proved <coughs> to have great impact throughout this growing AA movement in the country where the professionals were really in charge of the meetings, and Maria gave her own version, which was the right one, and she got that simply by observing one AA talking to a drunk alcoholic. Today, while Poland is on fire with the AA message, they have about 25,000 members and uh, it's grown faster than just about any place on earth what we didn't know when they started up in the 80s and started printing the literature right away was that they were um, operating illegally and they could have gone to jail for what they were doing but they were not to be stopped Um, that is not the story throughout all of eastern europe but it's similar um, there are many places, as I said earlier, where there are no intergroups, there's no telephones. that's hard to get gas for your car. And uh, it's tough. I'm, you know I can't imagine what it's like to start an AA meeting in a, when you've never been to one. you know where you have this translation of the big book that maybe your doctor gave you and that's all you have, and that's where you start with. I think it really is, is beautiful what's happening over there. But, you know, it's slow. There's literature available to them and occasional visits but members of the General Service or Office and all the wonderful American AAs of Eastern European descent who go over there and try to help. I mean, you really cannot overestimate the contribution that those people make on their visits over there. And... Um, <laughs> all of the, you know, the literature certainly is because of contributions. It's because of basket money from AA members in the U.S. and Canada. We had a lovely letter from a guy in Budapest about a year ago when he had received the recent Hungarian translation of As Bill Sees It, and he wrote, uh, I cannot believe that I am reading in Hungarian the words of the man who saved my life. It's beautiful to see what's happening, and it certainly makes you feel, you know, very, very, just, li- just like this tiny little dot in this great scheme. But for all the literature that's been sent in, and will be in the future, and, I, you know, I don't think that they could survive without it, but nothing really happens until people start working with each other. There was a guy in a hospital in rural Slovakia who said to one of our trustees, he said, I have your book, but I have no one to help me. So a lot remains to be done, you know, just as I'm sure it does here where there's probably some drunks around the corner that are, they're gonna call your intergroup and get one of your wonderful volunteers on the phone and their life will be changed that in another way, somebody's life on the other side of the globe is going to be changed because the groups in the U.S. and Canada have made that possible. So it's really wonderful to be a small part of that. And I'm I'm very grateful for the privilege and also for the privilege of being with you in this terrific anniversary celebration. I think that... uh, You know, you would have been a a great crowd to drink with, which is about the highest compliment I can pay any AA members. And thank you very much for having me.